Welcome to Sliceonomics. I'm your host, Kyla Scanlon. Sliceonomics is a podcast that is focused on exploring the complexity of economics, media, and culture, and looks at the world through a human-focused lens, analyzing beyond numbers and into the nebulous of everyday lives and how they're shaped by the big thematics around us. Sliceonomics is in co-production with Public.com, an investing platform that allows people to invest in stocks, ETFs, treasuries, crypto, art, collectibles, and more, all in one place. Scan the QR code right here on the screen or check out the link in the episode description box to learn more. Today, we are talking with Diane Swank, Chief Economist at KPMG. Diane has an incredible story. She began her career at First Chicago and climbed up the ranks. She then had her own economics consulting firm and now works with KPMG to highlight how people really are the economy. Her path was windy, and she has accomplished many amazing things across research, personal health, personal tragedy, and more. It was an incredible interview, and I hope that you enjoyed it. Hey, Diane, thanks for joining me today. I'm so excited to chat with you. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, so I first want to talk about your path to becoming the chief economist at KPMG. And you've mentioned in other interviews that economic, economics was very intuitive to you and that you felt like you belonged in the classroom, which isn't the case for a lot of people. So can you talk about how you got to where you are today within the field of economics? Oh, gosh, you got to go all the way back to um, not being able to get in any classes into any classes at University of Michigan my sophomore year. And um, the only class that was open was economics. So I took it because it looked interesting. I had no idea what it was. And I was in one of those big, huge 350 person, you know, lecture halls with an absolutely horrible lecturer. Um, he was a he was a Marxist and that was, you know, not his biggest flaw. Um, it was just he was not a good lecturer. But we had these amazing breakout sessions three times a week with only 14 people in a class with a TA, TA uh, teacher's assistant that was not too hard on the eyes. And um, I was the only girl in the class, but I didn't think anything of it because everyone was, we just was sort of collaborative. And as the stuff was falling out in front of me, I realized, wow, this is really easy. This is really intuitive. This is just the easiest thing I ever did. And it was the easiest A I'd ever gotten. And I needed a major. And my dad was really, really angry at me for not becoming an engineer, which he was. And when I decided to declare economics as my major not long after that, right before I took the class, by the way, the oldest building on campus, the Engels building, had been burned down by someone who was getting revenge for his lover who had done poorly on an economic exam and oh. burned down all of the research that people had done. And back then, this is when they had things called floppy disks and everybody's stuff just, there was no cloud, there was no backup. Everyone's stuff went up in smoke. And, you know, thinking that someone would have been that passionate to destroy everyone's work, that was sort of, you know, a bit of a ding, ding, ding bell. And I was dating my first boyfriend slash husband back then. And his father was a physicist on campus and he saw it happen. He called me. But, um, after I declared my major, my father threatened to discontinue my education um, funding unless I, you know, did something that was, I was going to make money in, I guess, or something he'd approved of. And what he didn't tell me, and even though my parents were divorced, he never let me know that my mother was paying for 40% of my education. And um, she said, no, she can do what she wants. And that intervention that she made and my decision to do that were the best two decisions. 
and having that support at that time was really great. And I had a lot of great mentors within my own field. And I didn't know until I got into it. Even after graduate school, I did an accelerated program at Michigan. Um, it was the first applied economics master's program they ever had in the country. And I did it in five years, um, in a year. Um, after I started, I graduated in April and started right after a few weeks after my master's because I had a one-year scholarship for a two-year program. And I thought that meant I had to finish it in a year and I didn't want anyone to ever tell me again um, what to do with my life through the power of the wallet. And so I finished it quickly and then I got a job uh, in a making less than I did as a waitress in a bank um, economics department working for who later became my mentor for life. Um, and he hired me on the spot. But at the time, my father um, was pretty angry at me. And also my professors got angry at me because then I was promised they would pay for a PhD um, when I got into economics in this larger department in a big money center bank in Chicago. It was called for Chicago back at the time. And then they changed their mind because there was a lot of restructuring going on. And I said, what will you pay for? And they said, an MBA. So I said, okay, I'll do an MBA. So I did an MBA at University of Chicago, accelerated again, because it was really easy doing an MBA when you'd already had economics at a school that only taught economics. So that was not too hard. Although back when I was doing that and friends of mine that were in the PhD program had to deal with, they had, um, they had a sign on the door that said there was an economist room and a ladies room. Oh, wow. Which is, you know, um, at the time that I went, it was, you know, less than a third women. And in my classes, um, I realized all of a sudden that the world was different than what I had thought it was. But by then, my dad brought me up to be a boy. I was an only child and he wanted a son. And my boyfriend, the one that I met that told me the economics department was burning down. Um, my first husband was the son my father always wanted, which my father later made very clear to me, even when I got to my third and final husband. Um, third time is a charm. <laughs> but, um, you know, really taking economics was one of the few things that as a dyslexic and someone who mixes up numbers, mixes up words, I don't know the difference between from and form. Um, but I think multidimensionally, I don't think linearly. Um, I don't think in a straight line. I think in reaction functions and I can do complex math in my head and being able to do that and see how that provided a framework for understanding something as complex as human behavior was just one, the easiest thing that I'd ever done, but also the most fascinating thing. And I thought this unlocked the world that I'd grown up with. I saw the reasons why my best friend went into poverty, even as we were doing okay. Um, in the Detroit area, I saw, you know, I understood all of a sudden the mistakes that were being made in policy. And it was really hard for me later in life that my children, you know, we were on the lucky end of this, but they had to witness their friends and their parents lose jobs and really lose everything in the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. And I remember at one point in time, my son was just a little kid and he was growing and his best friend, his father had been a stockbroker and his best friend couldn't buy shoes and his older brother had gone to Harvard and all of a sudden my son wouldn't buy shoes and he wouldn't buy shoes until his best friend could buy shoes. And the problem was he was growing and it was a long time yeah. and he grew out of those shoes and 
it was really hard for me as an economist to know it's always been personal. It was about my personal, you know, growing up in the in the world I did in the Detroit area, um, seeing the devastation of two back-to-back recessions. Um, my father was an executive at General Motors. My stepfather was a UAW worker at Ford. Um, seeing how people's lives were uprooted and changed forever and scarred, seeing the vicious cycles that took on in terms of poverty, um, especially when men lost their jobs. And my mentor happened to be someone who was not only had worked at the Federal Reserve, he worked very closely with a newly appointed chairman of the Fed, Alan Greenspan. Um, and I met him when I was really young. Um, and um, so I've known every Fed chairman since then really well. Um, but he was advisor to the Fed. He worked with the Fed. I ended up following in his steps because he, you know, um, was very supportive of me in those roles. But also my specialty from Michigan was labor economics, which is about behavioral economics and microeconomics in a macro sense. And, you know, being a macroeconomist in a finance field where, you know, I'd show up and They'd ask me, you know, are you here to take notes for the speaker? And I'd say, no, I am your speaker. (laughs) And um, that was that was a lot. But um, over time, what I learned was to step into who I am and stop trying to be a male version of what my father wanted me to be. And for me, it was stepping into my femininity. For other people, it's stepping into the masculine side of themselves, but no longer trying. Once I unburdened myself and sort of came clean about the fact that I really couldn't read very well. I really couldn't, um, you know, writing was an extraordinary challenge. Um, Numbers I flipped and that I had to work really twice as hard. Um, I often say I used chainsaw to cut butter. Um, But once I was more open about that and what life was about and that I decided to have children, and um, I remember when I had I, – I worked through two of my maternity leaves, and I wouldn't recommend that of anyone. But if I had not have done that, I already knew the data. Yeah. I wouldn't have had a career, and I became the single support for my children after the World Trade Center, and I was in that as well. Um, and I made the decision to divorce their father. And um, having that background and knowing that you know I had to support them – People looked at me and thought that I was choosing ambition over my children when what I was choosing was their support and being a mom. And um, I learned a lot about stepping into myself. And now that I work with um, people that have things like parental leave and I have people I've, you know, talked through some of my colleagues on this who work with me and they're so worried about they're going to fall behind in their career. And I said, you know, it's different now. You don't have to do what I did. And I wouldn't recommend anyone doing it because it nearly killed me. Um, well, a lot of things nearly killed me. I guess I'm, 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 I'm someone who um, tenacity is something I've learned, but that's because there was never anyone there to pick me up. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, after, after 20 years after the World Trade Center, I also had cancer, mm-hmm. um, 11 surgeries during the pandemic. Oh um, you, you know, go in and you out the same day, double mastectomy, reconstruction, breast cancer, cervical, colon, um, and related to 9-11. And right now I have something else, some other health issues, and I still run 20 miles a week and lift weights and keep pushing. And um, my kids 
get frustrated with me because they want me to stay around. And I said, what do you think I'm trying to do? <laughs> and so for me, all of that embodies economist is part of my identity, along with all those other things, a cancer survivor, dyslexic. And the more that you find that you have identities that you identify with, the more full person I think you can become. Yeah. And what keeps you going despite all that adversity? Um, you know, there isn't, when you grow up and not having anyone to catch you, you keep going. And I've been told by therapists that other people didn't do that. Um, I guess it's something that I just instinctively, it's who I am. Mm -hmm. And I can't say that I always feel like getting out of bed. I can't say that I jump out of bed every morning, excited about the day. I have a lot of down days, but I just know how to put one foot in front of the other and keep my focus on the horizon and look for crossing some mythical finish line that's always further in the future, because as long as you keep chasing it, there's a reason to stay alive. Yeah. And um, that one foot in front of the other, not to completely flip topics, but you mentioned that in your your Consumer as Atlas piece, where you talked about how the consumer has to have this balance of endurance and strength. Can you talk about yes. that piece? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of my personal life, if you go back and look through a lot of what I write, the metaphors that I come up with um, and what I and what I use is actually based on human behavior and what we feel as human beings, because that's what the economy is, the study of collective human behavior. Yeah. So that's why I insert a lot of that. But um, I talked about, you know, this summer was really an extraordinary period. The U.S. consumer, not only did the U.S. consumer endure, but they held up the rest of the world, much like Atlas. And I'm originally named after um, the Greek goddess Diana or Artemis, goddess of the wood. The Greek version is Artemis. I think my dad wanted to name me Aphrodite and my mom thankfully nixed that one. <laughs> um, and she got him to compromise on Diana instead of Diana. But anyways, there's a lot of stories about my parents and all that. But, um, you know, there is, I spent a lot of time studying Greek mythology too, but, you know, the Atlas, Atlas was about endurance, not just raw strength. And the reason I put that up there was because we saw the U.S. consumer spending accelerate over the summer, despite the most aggressive rate hiking cycle that we've seen since the 1980s. And this should have devastated, you know, the consumer at least slowed them down. They shouldn't have accelerated in their spending. And, you know, I, I had to go back and Although we got the forecast right on the third quarter as we got close to it, you know, a year ago was I forecasting a recession when I was at Jackson Hole and heard the eight minute, 34 second speech that was like a bucket of cold ice as Jay, you know, Powell delivered it in the room. I believed like he did, there will be pain, there will be a recession. And that's the only way we're going to derail inflation. And the fact that we were able to see as we moved into the spring, wages finally move, inflation cool more rapidly than wages. And some of the purchasing power lost to inflation start to be restored. Long way to go. The price levels are still high. But that combined with the fact that the pandemic accelerated and amplified the healing of consumer balance sheets that was absence in the, absent in the wake of the Great Recession or the subprime housing market crisis. And consumers had well, with recent revisions, more than double what we thought they were going to have by the end of the summer in terms of savings that they still had amassed. 
during the pandemic, either by not spending or by, from stimulus checks um, or from what they saved when they locked and loaded on lower mortgage rates. Now, that locked a lot of people out of yeah. the mortgage market, but also consumer debt burdens um, fell quite a bit. Now, what we've seen over the summer is as they spent, their accumulation of debt slowed, but they did accumulate debt. And delinquencies have also picked up quite a bit over the last year because, of course, at higher rates is compounding much more rapidly. And the first wave of that acceleration in delinquencies was really concentrated in subprime in those which to be honest with you, you start getting into the bottom 50%. I mean, it's, you know, we talk about this, but it's really, it's a lot of people. Um, you know, the, the banks are tightening credit on anyone below 680, 620 to 680 in the most recent um, data by the Fed. That's a lot of people. That's 46% of consumers out there. Um, but the delinquencies started to pick up. But then this summer where they started to pick up, they've always been hard for people that are at the lowest end of the income quintile. Although the increase in wealth between 2019 and 2022 was one of the most stunning we've ever seen. It was the largest on record on net worth. And it was the first time we saw it across all income strata, across all ages, and across educational attainment. Now, with that said, we also at the same time saw in 2022, now that's, you know, not, that's almost a year ago now, that the number of people um, impoverished in poverty exceeded the level of 2019, despite these low unemployment rates. And I think these are things that are important to remember because in the most recent iteration of consumer credit data that we got, although those that are you know, subprime borrowers and those who can afford inflation least are seeing delinquencies go up, we're now seeing in, in the third, third quartile of incomes, that's you know higher income, higher middle income households, mm-hmm. where they're going delinquent on their loans. And those are millennials and baby boomers. And um, that means that, you know, there is a bite of higher interest rates. You can't just completely escape the higher interest rates and the burn of inflation. And in many ways, I look back and I think of the great leveling up that we saw of lower incomes um, as we reopened the economy. And you saw, you know, incredible all of a sudden that, you know, people that were paid almost nothing had a major bump up in their incomes. And they had a moment in the sun after being in the shadows of this economy only to be burned by inflation. And now that inflation is cooling, price levels are still high. And that's why the Fed is so intent on making sure we cross that finish line in terms of getting all the way down to where inflation no longer distorts our decisions every day, what we buy at the grocery store, what we can feed our families, because that is what we need to do to restore living standards. And I think that's something that still is part of the journey that we're on and the path that we're on. And we need the endurance of Atlas, not just the strength that we showed that defied the rest of the world, defied Europe, you know, what's either slowing or flirting with recessions or in recessions. And we held up the global economy, but we need to also have that endurance, that ability, the tenacity to keep going even when it gets tough. And that's what I worry about um 2024 is about yeah and i think people are tired like i think that if you look at consumer sentiment people are worn out and so how would you you, know yeah you know that's a great you know kyla the sentiment issue is and it's one that i think is really important because the university of michigan's index of consumer center it's more sensitive to inflation than the conference board measure of consumer attitudes but let's face it i mean 
the peak in consumer sentiment was January of 2000. Around the time, not too far, incidentally, from the last peak in women's participation, primates participation in the labor force, which we finally exceeded this year after 20 years of not getting there. That's another issue entirely. But um, and we lag all of our developing counterparts in the world and some of our developed uh, are developed, developed and developing. And that's really sad. But that's another issue entirely. But I think um, what's important is if you look around the world and, you know, consumer sentiment in January of 2000, unemployment was higher than it is today. Inflation was just a tad lower than it is today. Um, growth, you know, after almost 5%, um, was kind of on par to where we're at right now. And yet consumer sentiment was 112. And in October, it was in the mid 60s. Wow. And it's never recovered to pre-pandemic levels. And we know that, you know, people's, um, the divisions that we see in our politics have filtered through to consumer sentiment. And we now view the economy through the lens and distortions of our political ideologies. And there's differences between Republicans and Democrats and independents. But we also know it's almost an IQ test. If you looked around the world at 2000, January, at the peak of the dot-com bubble, the internet bubble, and you looked around the world today, which world was better? I think that world was a lot easier than the world we face today. And that's even with the remarkable strides we've made since the onset of the pandemic. And, you know, I talk a lot about women's participation, <clears throat> excuse me, in the labor force, which is, you know, and prime age, it's by the government. You know this, Kyla, right? Um, that 25 to 54 is considered prime age by the government, which I'm no longer in that category. So I'm no longer in my prime, according to the federal government, oh in the employment market. Although um, I kind of think of myself like a fine wine. I get better with age. Um, but the prime age finally, you know, for women, crossed that previous peak in 2023, mostly because women of color lifted it. That's despite a child care crisis in this country. Um, and I, parental leave is at a record high. And I don't think that I think that those two are combined. It's good that we get parental leave now, but people need it in the first year their child is born because they don't have the support they did. Um, but more importantly, people forget that, you know, participation by men in the labor force, they're always looking at this as a zero sum game. And I don't get that because men's participation rate peaked in 1959. Yeah. I mean, let's wake up. Um, we need all hands on deck. What are we doing to discard so much talent? And by the way, the erosion in male participation is a global phenomenon. And um, I think that's important, too. Women will step into male-dominated roles, as I did in my career. But men will not as easily step into female-dominated roles like nursing and teaching. And some of that's because of pay differentials, although even when the pay picks up, they still won't do it, and that's societal norms. And we need to change that because we need all hands on deck, and we can't discard any talent at any level. And so what are these people doing when they're not in the labor force, and how would we bring them back in? Well, some men, thankfully, are also taking care of kids a little bit more, but that's not the majority. I mean, I think, you know, we've got a multitude of problems going on with um, participation rate, particularly among men, particularly among white men um, in the labor force. We had the incarceration issue that disproportionately hit men of color. But among white men, we also, and in, in, in 
men of color as well, but we've also had an opioid crisis. And those are you know, just a few of the many things. But what we do know is that women are much more likely when they've been unemployed to not let that be a permanent setback in their life. Um, friend of mine who's a labor economist who used to be at the Chicago Fed did some of the pioneering research on this on union workers back in the 1980s and early 90s and those who had lost their jobs and not been able to get back into the labor force, but also the degradation in both their physical and their mental health that occurred. And then the vicious cycles that erupted within their families where families broke up because they wouldn't get back in again. And we need to think hard about what our social norms are, that people feel a hurdle to going back. And part of that is because they might have been able to make the same money they could before. Well, that happens to women too. And yet women will go in for their children more than anything they'll go in. Um, and I think that's, you know, that those are things that are deep seated and we see it not just in the U.S., we see it global in scope, which means we're not alone in our problem, which means we need to rethink how we think about these gender norms in the labor force and how also do we engage everyone. And that means, you know, much more thought about what does it mean to really deal with people who have been displaced? And some people will respond to different kinds of training. I don't think we train people very well to go back into the labor force once they've been displaced. Yeah. But I think it's important to also keep all those other things in mind, that there's a, there are gender differences um, and there are differences by identity as well. And, you know, I, I think it's not wrong to be able to address all the differences. And I think we need to have an honest, holistic conversation about what we're doing that is somehow leaving people by the sidelines when we need all hands on deck. Yeah. And you wrote this book in 2003 called The Passionate Economist, uh, where it's the power and humanity behind the numbers. And I feel like everything that you're saying is that. But like economics can really struggle as a whole, I think, with like what you're talking about. Like, how do we make people's lives better. So how, how do you deal with that? Like this push and pull between people are the economy and then the GDP is the economy sort of thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And there's about 20 other books I've, I have the option to write and have been asked to write and I still haven't finished. Um, since then it's, it is hard. And I think, you know, especially if you're a policymaker and you're trying to make a tough decision about, knowing, and, and I watch Jay Powell struggle with this right now. Um, he's a deeply religious man. And it really, he actually spends time going and talking to people outside of the camera's view to find out what really, you know, what affects their lives. And the thought when he gave the speech in August of 2022, that he would have to trigger a recession to get rid of inflation and why he felt that was necessary. And this gets into those trade-offs you talk about. He understood inherently that if we don't derail inflation one way or another, um, which I wrote a piece on based on Blondie's, I'm going to get you one way or the other, or another <laughs> at one point in time, um, that if we don't do that, the consequences and the costs for individuals' lives, we know from history, are worse than if we make those really hard decisions that might displace people and make their lives temporarily really hard. And that is painful. And I think that is something that people don't realize that policymakers do struggle with. 
And I think too much, I mean, in, in the world we're in, you don't get to have a conversation like we are. A lot of it is all about sound bites, right? And ideology instead of what the actual evidence shows. And one of the hardest realities for me um, in recent years has been how my own field, economics, stacks up against other major fields in terms of women and underrepresented groups. It's the worst, period, bar none. So, you know, even as we struggle with what does economics mean and how do the trade-offs and pain mean for people's real lives as we're talking about it and being hum human about that, the fact that this is a field that I'm in that was disproportionately harder to people who look like me and people who didn't look like me, that people that didn't happen to fit a certain mold more than any other field out there is something that I am now committing to and have been committed to for decades trying to change. But when we turned our lens on ourselves in economics, we learned something I think that was very hard. And what I've learned in my life is that economics is about human behavior, but it's also about human beings. And if you can't be empathetic, then frankly, you don't belong being an economist. Now, that would illuminate a lot of economists. <laughs> a lot of economists, yeah. But I do find that, you know, empathy is something that helps you see the whole of the world rather than through these, you know, oh, those people just don't work. The reason, you know, unemployment rate went up mostly during the summer because more people were looking for jobs, not because layoffs picked up. Now, as we got into October, that was not as much the case. And this is you know, something I'm worried about going forward is that employment gains, you know, after this frenzy of reopening and surge in employment, we saw employment gains slow this year, but they've also gotten more narrow. They're in just, you know, over 90 percent of employment gains since July have been in three sectors, leisure and hospitality, healthcare, and and government, mostly public education. And those are sectors that lagged earlier on. Um, there are also sectors where, you know, they're less interest rate sensitive, but the narrowing and slowing of employment growth makes us much more susceptible to an external shock. So then you think of the strikes, the actor strike, the writer strike was settled, but the actor strike and the UAW strike and, you know, the collateral damage of that has a bigger impact. We had a big slowdown in October in part because those strikes were going on, but also because we're now much more vulnerable where we are today. And those are the things I think about, and I think it's important to think about those things um, when you think about the overall economy and talk about it, because you have to connect with people in the audience at all levels. And if people don't feel you're authentic and you can see them, they don't want to listen to you, and I can't blame them. And um, this will be my, my last question, but you do this work with the Posse Foundation, um, which helps young women or um, people who might be overlooked by traditional universities get into universities. Um, and in, in your LinkedIn uh, part where you wrote about it, you said, they remind us that the path is a lesson, not our destiny. And so I'm curious, like, number one, can you talk about that? And then number two, I feel like this is just really hard in general, but how do you personally build empathy? Like, is that something that's just ingrained with you? Or is that something that you've explored? Um. I think I was born empathetic, so I probably have too much empathy at times, but um, it is something that 
I'll answer the first question first, Posse Foundation. I mean, you know, I've met kids and taken my kids who know that they've had privilege in their lives because I was able to support them and pay for all their college. My kids are in great. My daughter's in graduate school. You know, she's um, doing great. Um, my son's finishing up. They they don't have debt. They're privileged in that way and they know it. Um, that doesn't mean they haven't had struggles. I mean, they had a mom who had cancer and was in the World Trade Center on 9-11 and was responsible for a lot of economists because she chose it for that meeting. Um, and she had a lot of trauma and they had to put up with me. Um, my son does stand-up comedy as well as um, computer science. And he says, I've given him a lifetime of material, um, which is good. You know, you got to laugh. But when they meet the posse kids and their graduates, these are kids that did not have all that. And either pick their junior year and they get a full ride and they get coaching. Um, and it's based only on merit. And it's through a process that is not the traditional SATs and stuff, but it's through a process that um, we pick, we choose them and they have a higher success rate in college than average kids. And 40% go on to graduate school. They're the biggest pipeline into the um, Fulbright scholars. Um, they're amazing, amazing people with tenacity, endurance, and grit. And that is what you can't underestimate. These kids who grew up Literally, one of them I met, his best friend was shot the day he got his posse scholarship standing next to him in Inglewood, randomly. That's something I can not relate to because I didn't grow up that way, but I can be empathetic to. And the fact that he could turn that into something positive makes anything I did nothing compared to that. And to see how much talent through this process, even kids who didn't have the best grades, but just had tenacity and grit could succeed and are so brilliant and humbling. That gives me hope. You know, um, it, it's something that it's you want to aspire to. And that's why I'm involved in it. In terms of empathy and whether or not you can build it, I don't know the answer to that. I just know, do know that if you take the time to actually listen and think about what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes and spend that time to truly listen, you just might get there. Thank you. And sometimes being quiet and just listening is the first step to being a human being. Thanks, Diane. I, that's um, that's such a beautiful way to to end this. Um, I feel like that's hard for people is to like put their put themselves in somebody else's shoes, right? Like it's um, I think especially now people feel so overwhelmed by their own shoes. But it's a good reminder to, to do that. Well, I get pretty overwhelmed in my own shoes all the time. So um, I know what it's like. I I had a, a young woman, actually a woman who works for me right now, and she said she struggled with imposter syndrome. And I said, welcome to the club. Every single one of us struggles with it every single day. And I'm going to promote you anyways. And you're <laughs> going to step into this position and you're going to do great. Right. And, you know, we all need those cheerleaders. Um, I often... 
um, tell a story of when I was in sixth grade. And at that time, middle school was junior high, seventh grade through ninth. And sixth grade was the top of the school. And I had teachers, this was this was a long time ago. I'm old. Um, and I had teachers that decided to do a mock Olympics. And they did a mock Olympics and let the men, the boys compete with the girls. That was a pretty radical thing to do back in the day. And in doing that, I, I loved the high jump. And it was such a metaphor for my life because every time I thought I had gotten over a hurdle, my father raised the bar. And I got, I had to go over a higher hurdle. And they put me up against, at the end of the day, I won going over and over and over again. And at the end of the day, I was put up, pitted against the tallest kid in the class who was like, you know, I was like four feet something and he was, you know, so much taller than me. It was just crazy. And it was clear who was going to win. Right. And of course, his arrogance got in the way and he knocked the pole over. And then when it came to me, I concentrated so hard on seeing myself go over that hurdle that I not only cleared it, I ended up on the other side of the mats and skidding across the grass with grass stains all the way up me. But I won. And I had my girlfriend who was down the street from me, very different. We went to school together every single day, our entire from kindergarten through um, high school. And she was cheering me on. And that's what got me through. It was just one person saying, you can do it. Just see yourself doing it, Diane. Just see it. And later in life, I said to my father, I felt like I always failed you because every time I got over whatever it is you had me get over, you raised the bar. And so then I had to get over something higher. And he turned back to me and he said, Diane, I kept raising the bar because it looked like you sailed over it so easily. I thought it wasn't challenging enough. Mm-hmm. And that made me realize how many people, how hard it is for them. And you don't realize it. And again, that gets back to listen for what you can relate to in a person's life that's different from you and spend time thinking about what that might be like. And you might find that you have more in common than you realize. Yeah, I think usually, I think like a core part of empathy is just being able to see yourself in others and doing it through that listening process um, and taking time to do it too, which is most important. And, And not engaging, truly listening. I mean, I, I've been on planes where people sit down and, you know, they've got a pointed view and they want to tell it to me because <laughs> they recognize who I am. I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. And I'll do something like ask them about their kids. And I've had grown men crying to me because they lost a child. Yeah. Um, and, you know, inviting me over for, you know, for barbecue. And, you know, we, we disagreed on probably a lot of things in life. But when it comes down to being a human being, we could still connect and it's not really that hard if you try. Yeah. Just have to, just have to try. And a lot of people don't try. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I listen to my kids. They teach me a lot and they tell me where I'm wrong. And we, you know, we have open debate all the time, but healthy debate. And I think that's important is to give one, people need to feel they're heard. And two, you have to actually listen to them. And you might surprise yourself on what you can identify with once you do. 
Yeah, because we're all humans at the end of the day. Like there are some similarities despite the differences. I try to focus on that, although I people ask me what keeps me awake at night. Everything. <laughs> this I mean, is a crazy like, world. Well, like you said at the beginning, it's a super weird time and there's a bunch of weird stuff that we're having to process through and there aren't answers to a lot of the stuff that we have to figure out. No, there aren't. Yeah. It's And there's no easy answers. And I understand why people are angry. Yeah. I understand why a lot of people are angry. Yeah. And you know, there's times I'm angry too. I don't like when I have to deal with health problems. I don't like it when I have to deal with certain choices. I don't like having to deal with certain people. Um, but at the end of the day, you try to not let that determine your day. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Diane. This has been a really wonderful interview and I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Kyla. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you.